Welcome to ESG Out Loud. I'm Emil Halle. And I'm Paul Curcio. Today, we're talking with Lisa Wool, CEO of USCIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment. But first, let's dive into something that doesn't come up often in the ESG world, and that is cryptocurrency. So, Emil, the White House recently put out a report on some of the environmental implications for crypto. What did they find? So that's right, Paul. There was a report earlier this month from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. It was all about the climate consequences of distributed ledger technologies. President Biden ordered this report in March, and it's part of the administration's focus on climate change overall. What they found probably won't be much of a surprise to anyone who's familiar with the energy that's required for Bitcoin mining, and that is that it's not environmentally friendly. So there's about a trillion dollars held in digital assets globally, and the energy use that's associated with that results in 140 metric tons of CO2 released into the atmosphere annually. And that's about a third of all, a third of a percent of all greenhouse gas emissions. But in the US, it's higher, where about 1.7% of our electricity is used for crypto. For context, that's roughly the same as all the electricity that's used for residential lighting or personal computers. And the carbon equivalents that are associated with that are 0.8% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. And that's on par with all of the diesel that's burned by the railroad industry. So it's not insignificant. and this report also gets into the tech waste that's associated with crypto, primarily discarded computer parts that contain metals like cobalt, indium, and gold. And those end up in landfills rather than being repurposed or recycled most of the time. So it's pretty well known that so much of the energy that's used is associated with Bitcoin mining, where computers solve mathematical problems in order to validate transactions. And this is known as proof of work. And there's a lot of incentive to do this because the people with resources to do it get rewarded in free Bitcoin. But there's another way to go about this called proof of stake. And you probably heard about this in the news recently. And this is where owners of large amounts of digital assets are randomly chosen to validate transactions. And that's the consensus mechanism that Ethereum recently switched to. And that's a really big deal. It requires just a small fraction of, of a percent of the energy that's used for proof of work. And I should punctuate this by saying that I am not an expert in crypto. So anybody who's listening and uh, if I'm getting something uh, slightly wrong about that, um, I am not an expert. Well, you sound very, you sound very knowledgeable, uh, Emil, and everything you're saying, you know, coincides with what my understanding of what crypto does. And I'll, I'll point out something that's very interesting. I am not, I think you know this, I am not a fan of cryptocurrency. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm way against it. Um, but two things that you uh, brought up, I think, are interesting. First, uh, proof of work, which is the thing that I have the most issue with. Yes, it's an energy pig. Uh, and it, it's got people uh, building building their their mining operations, whether it's individuals or people who are doing it in a, in a venture capital kind of way to try and use it to make money. My, I've always wondered this. So you have a fixed amount of Bitcoin, right? And there, there's going to be a point where all the Bitcoins mined. And proof of work is you're doing these mathematical calculations in order to in order to gain the free Bitcoin. Here's my question, 
And this is where you get to see my conspiratorial side come out. What is this math problem that is so complicated that they're trying to solve? What do they do? Do they activate the Italian satellites that are going to activate the Jewish space lasers that are going to then uh, start World War III? I, I, don't, I really am questioning what the work is. Are we all working towards our own destruction by doing this mathematical calculation that, that takes over the internet? That's my first question. Second, proof of stake is actually probably the thing that I've noticed is, is the way that we should be going, at least with digital currency, as long as it's here, because Ethereum recently did its merger, if I'm not mistaken, as a very uh, for that very reason, to try and reduce, uh, one of the big reasons to try and reduce its, its carbon footprint. So there's a lot there. I'm not even getting into the into uh, digital currencies being adopted by by central banks because then then we have really got to get out a you know a, a fleet of tinfoil hats and uh, <laughs> yeah and I could I could go on about that one I'm I'm sure you could and and I am curious to get your, your thoughts on that as well but you know I think that you know the main point for this is and, and for a lot of the folks interesting that there's a lot of things to think about if you're a sustainability minded investor and Surveys have shown that that folks who are interested in ESG kind of broadly are more likely to also have crypto. I don't think that's a causal relationship. It's just maybe these are these are folks who are more into investing or issues around investing. Well, I think anything that gets people interested in investing and looking to their future and their financial health is a good thing. Now, whether they're investing in the modern equivalent of the tulip frenzy, uh, that's another thing. And that's my concern, uh, that, that crypto is essentially a Ponzi scheme. Um, and, and the last people in are the ones who are going to get left holding the bag, essentially. Uh, so that's that's my that's my number one issue with it. I'm also a little concerned. We haven't even gotten anywhere near NFTs, which that's that's a whole other conversation that we can have. I, I read that a, a, a multimillionaire bought an, an original Frida Kahlo painting that was worth $10 million and burned it to make the NFT digital asset more valuable. Wow, that's something. Yeah, I don't under, quite understand that reasoning. Huh. A physical asset for a digital one. I, I have a photographer friend who makes very large prints and a client of his who's, who's a friend burned one of his paintings so that he could put the ashes in a jar and keep it on his shelf because there was no way he was fitting a print so large inside of his apartment. And that was his creative way of being able to display the art. Um, but that is, I don't think there was an NFT associated with that. Going back to um, the number, the amount of Bitcoin out there though, you know, my my understanding was that, and, and this is where my lack of knowledge about Bitcoin and, and digital currencies uh, is going to show is when you're Bitcoin mining, there's there's new Bitcoin that's awarded. But is, does that come from like a fixed pile or is that is it just like newly created? I believe so. I, my understanding is that Bitcoin, there is a fixed number of Bitcoin that can be mined. And once you reach it, they can be mined no longer. And then you have basically, again, my understanding and anybody out there who knows better than me, because Lord knows there's plenty of things I don't know about. We'll hear about it. That that it becomes like a secondary yeah. market, like the stock market. You have an IPO, uh -huh. and then and then the shares trade again, unless somebody comes up with a new a, a new Bitcoin too. I see. You know, all right, now there's you know I, I forget the number of Bitcoin that's out there. It's it's a big number. 
but but it's being tracked. Uh, you can go on Yahoo Finance and, and see the number. It's 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 out there. So yeah, a lot a lot for ESG investors to think about, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens um, with proof of stake as it's been around a little bit long or been used by Ethereum. Um, you know, one of one of the big uh, cryptocurrencies for for so long. And whether or not that will encourage others to change as well. I mean, the the energy savings implications are just, you know, if they're accurate, there's just no comparison. It's just so much more environmentally friendly, and it just it it seems like it makes more sense to me. So with that, I think we've exhausted our conversation on Bitcoin, and uh, we can get to your great interview with Lisa Wall, the CEO of USF. I'd like to welcome our guest this month, Lisa Wall who is the CEO of USCIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment. Lisa has been leading the organization for 16 years, and there is so much that has changed in the ESG world during that time. She recently announced that she's stepping down from her role at USCIF early next year. So I wanted to take this opportunity to ask her to reflect on her time there and what she sees as a future for sustainable investing. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Emil, and thanks for all the, all your really good coverage of the field. Much appreciated. Well, thank you very much. So for the casual listener who maybe isn't familiar with USCIF, can you give us kind of a bite-sized overview of what the organization does? Yes, we are a field-building institution with about 250 members uh, that cross the span of asset managers and asset owners data and research providers, community investment development institutions, advisors and consultants. So the range of actors in the sustainable investing space and our main strategies to advance the field, which is our mission, is to advance the field of sustainable investing, is to work on public policy at the national level, putting out high quality research, including our trends report that comes out every two years and will come out uh, this December. Uh, education, we have a broad range of educational programs, including the only designation in the United States with the CFFP, uh, as well as uh, programming for our members, our national conference, local events, and other convenings. So I, I want to get into your thoughts about how the sustainable investing world has changed. But first, I'm curious about what you hope to accomplish when you started at USF. And what gets you excited about sustainability? Well, the organization was very small. So really what I had hoped to accomplish the first two years was to still have the organization and build it. Um, and so what I inherited was quite a small organization, which uh, back in the day was called the Social Investment Forum, because what we were calling the field back then was socially responsible investing. Um, and... Uh, what I really wanted to do was, one, to learn more about the field myself. I didn't enter as CEO as an expert in the field, um, so I had a learning curve myself. And uh, what I wanted to do was to get to know the members and then to determine uh, what would be the most impactful strategies for us to undertake to really grow this field, which at that point was really made up of the early adopters of the field, the Trilliums and the Dominies. Um, it was a very different time than today. And so I guess if you can expand a little bit on how the sustainable investing world has changed and, and where you see it today. Absolutely. And um, it's quite a long list. So at any point, if you want me to elaborate or skip, 
uh, please let me know. Um, but wh- when I came to USF, the world was talking about socially responsible investing. And when, when I was interviewed by journalists, mostly what they would start out with is, this is just a niche and a fad, right? Um, it's only negative screening. And that, that was the conversation. And what I had to do at that time, and I still have to do a good bit of it, but what I had to do was really educate journalists about what the field really was about and all the different strategies and all the different players. That, hasn't, that piece of it hasn't changed that much. It's just that the players have gotten so much larger. And sometimes uh, this year, what I felt is almost like my head was spinning because I've gone rather quickly, you know, over the span of five years to saying sustainable investing is not a niche and not a fad to saying, no, sustainable investing really isn't too big. And it's, it's really a real practice. It's not just greenwashing, which of course has been uh, in the, in the, in the debate recently. And so it really has gone rather quickly from being uh, something that people refer to as a niche and a fad that was just always going to be a tiny part of the financial services industry to something that's been taken up by such a broad array of players, including what you would really consider conventional asset managers and asset owners. And um, what we've seen is just such a big expansion of the field. So not just a, a, a much broader range of um, asset managers, but asset owners who, except for a couple of public pension funds, really were not investing in this manner when I started 16 years ago. So now you've got foundations involved in this, big ones and small ones, family offices, advisors. One of the things that probably happened in my first uh, half decade at USCIF was a lot of conversation about how advisors were either going to be professionals that helped the field to grow or acted as barriers because they just didn't know enough about it to even have a conversation with their clients. And so one of the first things we did is we created a course on the fundamentals of sustainable and impact investing. And of course, now you've got lots of advisors who are either both interested in the field, feel pressure from their clients to know more about the field, or in fact have educated themselves about the field, whether through a course from USCIF, the designation with the CFFP, or through other courses and educational opportunities that there are out there, because this has become a really important area of study. Uh, Just as an example, uh, in the last two weeks, I've been asked by two of my members, former board members, who are teaching courses at different universities to come and speak at these classes, which is wonderful, because if we can get business school and liberal arts grads to understand what sustainable investing is before they graduate from school, and maybe get interested in it, they can join this field and help expand it as well. Another interesting change is that the field has become so expansive that big firms are looking to buy expertise. So one of the things we've seen is some of our members um, get bought by other members um, as they seek to buy sustainable investment expertise uh, in their own organizations. Um, There's been a tremendous amount of infrastructure built in the field um, from research and data providers, another place where you see a lot of buyouts and mergers. Um, There's greater knowledge about shareholder engagement and its importance in impacting the way companies act. Um, I'd say 
within that, there is, if you think about sustainable investment, as focused on the utilization of ESG criteria and directed towards perhaps making environmental, social, and governance advances, what we've seen in the last five years is a much broader and deeper focus on the social. I'd say governance has, for a long time, many decades, been a focus of sustainable investors and others. Climate, of course, has been a, a focal point for sustainable investors for decades. It's only expanded. And of course, it's a big policy issue and an important front page news item virtually every day in this country. But the social piece has really gotten more legs, particularly in the pandemic, as we started to focus on workers' rights, health insurance, sick pay, leave, the impact of the pandemic on so many people, and issues like human rights and gender and racial justice. Uh, with the murder of George Floyd, you saw an incredible uptake among many of our members and other uh, financial professionals around how do you look at issues of racial justice. So I think more recently in the last four years, you've really seen a much deeper uh, and new approach to thinking about uh, racial justice issues. Well, so, and I want to get on to, to another thing that <laughs> regarding sure. how things have changed. So, you know, in 16 years, ESG was kind of barely on the radar for anyone except for institutional investors, like you said. Yeah. And it's gained so much popularity, so much attention. And, you know, getting into this year with the market behaving the way that it has and the energy sector being so favored, um, you know, and ESG has always had its critics, but, you know, with with performance being what it is and an industry being perceived as threatened, ESG kind of being dismissed as something that is just wokeness. Um, even um, the the comic strip Dilbert and its conservative author Scott Adams has has taken aim at it, and there's been this pushback in, against sustainable investing that um, has made it even more of a household name, I think. And what I'm curious about is, you know, in your opinion, is it worse to have so much negative attention and misinformation on it, or just less attention at all? Like, is there some benefit to having it being more in the public discussion. When I saw that we were in a cartoon, I said, gosh, we really hit the mainstream now, right? I mean, we always wanted to get into more mainstream publications. You don't get much more mainstream than the comics page. And I say that a little bit with sarcasm. Um, but what I would say is this, we were getting plenty of attention before we started to have um, politicians and organizations like this, the State Financial State Financial Officers Foundation, which have taken a very kind of uh, uh, strong approach to bashing uh, sustainable investment. We were, you know, we were being covered a lot because the interest had grown so much because there were so many new players because in this administration under President Joe Biden, there have been multiple opportunities to make policy impacts, which perhaps we can talk about in a few minutes. So, uh, you know, there is a perception, certainly among our members, that the fact that this field is getting such big swings at us uh, by by um, uh, conservative politicians is somewhat a measure of our success. Um, I think it also sucks a lot of oxygen out of the room to continue to have to respond to basically baseless claims that are 
fully in support of the fossil fuel industry. When you look at the states where you've had treasurers who have adopted anti-ESG legislation, um, you know, you see a lot of that being around divestment of fossil fuels or, adv- or investing to advance climate and to, to a lesser extent around guns and folks who don't want to be supporting the gun industry. So it's all very political. And um, it certainly has taken a lot of time and energy from organizations like USF and others to respond to it. So what I'd say is it, it certainly seems threatening to some folks, not because it's sustainable investment, but because of its focus on driving towards a better approach to climate change. And that is just something that we've seen in this country and like in many other countries, that still is a political debate, whether we should address the climate crisis. And that just makes no sense to me. And I'd say to any of my members. And and it seems like in this kind of post-truth environment that we're in, anytime something can be reduced to a soundbite, it's it's just so easy for people to dismiss. And I I know that USF has responded to some of this this pushback. um, And it, it doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime on its own soon. So I'm wondering, you know, what what should the message from ESG proponents, maybe for lack of a better term, uh, be? How should they be responding? Well, we we have put a 10 point uh, document. It's called ESG Truth that uh, USF has created. And you can also access, access that through our website where we actually lay out very clearly um, what is wrong with these uh, arguments that are very anti sustainable investment, um, including the fact that a lot of the, the states that are trying to uh, remove firms who focus on climate change from their investment funds are retirement plans for people who work for the state. And, you know, one of the things we've been really trying to do over the last decade is make sure that, for example, in the Department of Labor, that ERISA-governed plans can use ESG criteria. Uh, And that is something that the Labor Department immediately, uh, when Joe Biden took office, reversed uh, Trump's policies on that. And now we don't have a final rule from the DOL, but the proposal that came out from them was very strongly in favor of fiduciaries being able to look at ESG issues. That's at the national level, um, as well as to be able to vote their proxies and, and be involved in the shareholder process. And um, there's also members of Congress who want to codify an ERISA law, and ERISA law governs uh, uh, some number of pension plans, and oftentimes pension plans look at it for their own guidance, even if they're not governed by ERISA for people who might not be familiar with this. And so at a national level, we're very much moving towards clarifying that looking at ESG criteria within pension plans is not only just allowable, but could in some places be preferable. So very much not what's happening in some of these very conservative states. So I think in the long run, we will be successful in the continuation of looking at ESG issues so that folks who have their money invested for the long term are responding to long-term threats like climate change and wealth inequality and all of those other issues that really could have an impact on the retirement plan. So what I would say is what we're probably looking at is a relatively short-term blip that in the long run, say over the next five to 10 years, we're just going to see a continued movement toward looking at these very important factors in the investment process. And, and you know, if, if you want to talk a little bit more about what the, what the DOL 
what the proposed rule or rule change uh, kind of means. It's That's been an issue that has been kind of the ping pong ball across various administrations and the degree yes. to which they, you know, <laughs> there was at least the perception that ESG was okay in 401k plans. But, you know, so, so significantly the the proposed change that the Biden administration had is, you know, not, not only is it something that can be considered, maybe it should be considered, and that target date funds that incorporate sustainability are explicitly allowed, something that the Trump administration uh, pretty much outright banned. And mm-hmm. that's that's really the way to gather 401k assets since, yeah. you know, as we know, if you're a 401k saver, you probably are defaulted into the plan at the contribution level that the committee sets and whatever investment option they chose too. So, you know, that and generally speaking, the the friendliness that this administration has to ESG issues compared to the prior one, what can you say about different initiatives there and what makes you optimistic about these regulatory changes? Well, so one thing I wanted to say was uh, when we were talking uh, about the pushback against ESG is that I feel fairly confident that if I was to get the cell phone number for former Vice President Pence or the members of Congress or any of the uh, state uh, political officials who are pushing this anti-ESG message message in, could call them up and say, could you explain to me what sustainable investing is in two sentences? I feel extremely confident that less than 10% of these anti-ESG proponents would actually be able to answer that question. Uh, because I think it has just become straight out political messaging without the understanding of what that message is actually built on, which is decades of history, research, and really smart investing. And so I think that the, the politicians who have been putting out this message have not been pushed back at sufficiently by journalists and constituents and other politicians to really question how much they actually understand what they're talking about. So that's just my little dream, to be able to have that kind of conversation with someone to actually find out if they understand what sustainable investing actually is. Um, Back to your question about ERISA, um, it has been a political ping pong ball. I think I have been here through three administrations or four and um, I've had to work both to change the regulations and then to advance new regulations. And that's one of the reasons I mentioned that we're working uh, with some members of Congress uh, in the House right now, but uh, hopefully in the Senate as well, to actually change the, the law around ERISA, which is not easy to do and is a long-term, it's a long-term goal, because you don't want to have to do this every four years or every eight years when an administration changes. People's pension plans shouldn't be a political ping pong ball. It makes it very hard for fiduciaries to plan. It makes it very hard for pension plan participants to understand what their long-term options will be. So we think legislative change is the answer, and that's part of our uh, strategy as well. And it's the longer-term strategy, uh, trying to deal with regulations from one administration to the other is a short-term strategy. I'd like to get your thoughts broadly, too, on the different proposals that the SEC has made this year. Um, several of them affect sustainable investing, including you know, marketing rules for funds and advisors, um, and then disclosure for public companies. So um, what, what makes you optimistic about that 
we sent our first ask to the SEC in 2009, asking for broad ESG disclosure across a range of ESG issues that was compulsory, compulsory and comprehensive. So we're in 2022, so that's 13 years. So I guess I'm optimistic about the fact that we have some disclosure uh, regulations, potential regulations that we've been able to respond to. So I think it's t like so much policy. I always tell people who work on public policy, this is a long game. It often is a long game. If you get a short, a short term win, like that took you less than five years to get substantial policy change, you've had a great five years because many policy changes take a decade or more. This is one of them. In 2009, USCIF sent a, a proposal to the SEC asking for comprehensive ESC disclosure. And uh, while we've seen small pieces of that occur over the last couple of years, it's really been in this administration that we've started to see a real focus on a greater disclosure uh, for public companies. And um, of course, we responded to the first one, which was on climate change disclosure. And the conversation around that right now is whether uh, the SEC is really going to include scope three, which is, uh, up for some debate at the moment. And so we're eagerly waiting to see if scope three is included in climate change disclosure. And uh, we're hoping to see a rule by the end of the year, but not confident. Um, equally, we're awaiting uh, some a proposal on human capital management uh, that we had uh, thought we would see this year. But since we're almost in October, we're not sure that we're going to see that in this year and maybe early 2023. In the meantime, the SEC put out two proposals uh, that would uh, deal with the names of funds that say they include uh, ESG criteria or want to call themselves green or sustainable, but also more broad reaching proposal that required a greater disclosure uh, by funds on how they used ESG criteria. USCIF has responded to all of these proposals. Uh, you can find them on our website under policy. And in general, um, we very much supported the climate change uh, proposal and uh, put in some of our own uh, ass about what we thought uh, it might look like as a rule. In both the names and the fund disclosure, in general, we support them. We absolutely support a greater accountability and transparency on funds. Um, in 2014, we put out the first report on ESG integration, where we looked at what different financial services firms uh, were including in uh, their prospectuses and how they talked about ESG issues. And ever since then, we've been very clear that firms need to be very transparent and provide as much information as possible on the ESG criteria they use and how they use it. Uh, the funds disclosure that came out of the SEC we think will go a long way. So conceptually, we support it. On specifics, we had a number of recommendations on how they could improve it. We hope to see that also by the end of the year, but we're running out of time and we know that they got so much feedback that they have to take into consideration. So I think we're likely looking at the beginning of next year. So, you know, another thing I'm curious about is, is, is there a danger in relying too much on the potential for higher returns that funds that consider ESG factors have. 
And by that, I mean, when we get into times like we're at now, where the energy sector has been doing so well compared to a lot of funds that exclude it, that, that makes it kind of a natural target, even though that's, you know, investing generally is not about short-term returns. Um, you know, it should be about long-term returns uh, primarily. But I'm wondering how much other factors like sustainability for the sake of having a habitable, habitable world in the future and considering basic human rights and, and other issues, like how, how much should those be emphasized in the defense or argument for sustainable, uh, sustainable investing? Yeah, you know, um, as long as I've been at USF, we've had a diversity of voices. And as you, as you, especially as you transition from kind of the early adopter firms uh, to more conventional financial services firms, there are different conversations happening. There are still different conversations happening. Um, you know, you do definitely have some firms and financial professionals who will only talk about ESG criteria as a data point that's useful for better investment opportunities and better avoidance of risk. And then you have as many financial professionals who talk about not only is it a better way to invest, but it also allows you to create a more sustainable world across a range of environmental and social issues. And this is my membership, which is, which is a big tent um, filled with voices that all are aiming for the same goalpost, but not always for the exact same reasons. And I think that's fine because the folks who will invest in those funds and will be looking for different ways of communication and they will respond differently to different kinds of messages. And I'm quite comfortable with that. So as someone who has watched this industry change so much, if I can ask you to prognosticate just a little bit, uh, I'm curious about what you think the sustainable investing world is going to look like five years from now compared to where, where it is today. I think there's going to be a, um, a real impact of whatever comes from out of the SEC in terms of disclosure. Um, there will absolutely be firms who will start to report differently on the assets that, that are utilizing any kind of ESG criteria, uh, because I suspect what will come out of the SEC will make it really clear what can be counted as, as an ESG fund and what can't be. Um, mm -hmm. So I do think in five years, you might actually see, uh, and sooner than five years, a decrease in assets um, that uh, are said to be using ESG criteria because the SEC is going to make really clear how those assets are counted. That's one thing. I think that you will continue to have a multiplicity of voices in this field, and that will grow only larger. If you have watched the field over the last three years and have seen the growth in conversations about things like racial justice and biodiversity, those were not big conversations even five years ago among a range of investors, definitely a smaller group having them. But now it is a mainstream conversation. And I expect more of those social issues and more of those sub-climate issues. So not just climate change, but issues like biodiversity, water, uh, to, to grow louder and more important. 
And so what I think is you're going to see a broader range of issues being worked upon with more depth. I think you're going to see funds being far more scrutinized on how they are counting and describing uh, ESG assets. Um, I think you're going to see a continued growth in shareholder engagement, particularly around S issues. Um, and I think you're going to see a continued uh, expansion both of uh, new funds and products and also a continued expansion of bigger firms buying up smaller firms because they know they need this expertise and that's the quickest way for them to get it. I hope that we're going to see a lot more retail investors who both understand what sustainable investment is and seek to invest that way. Uh, to do that, honestly, we need a lot more financial education and financial literacy happening in the school system in this country. And unfortunately, that's still so rare to even have a financial literacy uh, component required before you graduate from high school. There's some really interesting research on that. I'm quite struck by it. I'd love to see that happen. I'm not sure it will happen, um, but it's something that I would love to see. So I think increased expansion, more diversity of product and issues going forward, but also much closer scrutiny and an, a change within firms uh, in the way that they count and discuss uh, their ESG assets. So finally, to kind of close the loop on this, you know, we mentioned at the beginning of the discussion that you have announced that you're stepping down from USF. Where are you going next? And can you elaborate at all on your plans uh, post-USF? Well, I'm not leaving USF until the end of January. And then I'll be staying as a part-time advisor through April to help with uh, the transition. And uh, I have many thoughts on what I'd like to do. And now I have the opportunity to start having those conversations with people about that. And so time will tell what the next the next version of uh, Lisa Wall looks like. Okay, well, please keep us informed. Lisa, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We'd like to thank our guest, Lisa Wolf, for joining our podcast today. It was very enlightening, and it was a great conversation, Emil. And thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest ESG news, please visit us at ESGClarity.com and subscribe to get newsletters sent right to your inbox. Join us again soon for more insight and analysis on the next episode of ESG Out Loud U.S. Thank you.